Good morning and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Julie and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Tuesday, February 18th. Today we are reading from the big book and we are on page 23, the second paragraph, paragraph starting with once in a while. Today's readers are Marjorie, Larry, and Dew. The reference number for Monday, February 17th is 5930. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience and strength and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence, and a practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Melanie to read the 12 steps. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, everyone. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Oregon. The 12 steps. One, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Yeah. Thank you, Melanie. And I will now ask Rachel to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. This is Rachel, compulsive overeater and anorexic. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, 
Each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radios, film, television, and other public media of communication. And 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Rachel. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year, and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book on page 23, the second paragraph. But just for context, we will reread the last paragraph from yesterday. These observations would be and continue through the end of the second paragraph once in a while. You may tell the truth. And do, would you start, I mean, Marjorie, would you start reading? Good morning. This is Marjorie, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none, none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. Once in a while, he may tell the truth, and the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. 
Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. The description of being down for the count is what finally opened the door for me to have continuous abstinence and to genuinely address myself with the 12 steps, to engage with the 12 steps. What had preceded that was 30-something years of descending into that state of rationalization that's described here. I overate because I had a bad day at work. I overate because things at home were in turmoil. I overate because I had financial problems. I overate because I had romantic problems. And if you would stick around long enough to hear me, I would give you a long recitation about them. But inside myself, I really did not know why I was overeating. Those were plausible. Those were absolutely socially acceptable excuses. And they're still socially acceptable. But inside myself, I knew that I was down for the count. When I came to my very first OA meeting, I was in my 20s. I still had more eating to do. I went to meetings, and I continued eating, and I experimented with abstinence. But when I could not continue to re- continue abstinence beyond maybe I would get a year, when I couldn't continue and I knew that I wanted permanent abstinence, that's when I knew that I was down for the count. I didn't think I was going to beat the game. And I was no longer just trying to find the next compulsive over the, the next binge. I was trying to find a way out, a, a complete way out. I really didn't think that... I could make this program work for me. I had heard people say that their abstinence was a gift from God. I still hear people say that. But there was something that was required of me, and I just didn't know what that was. I was down for the count. Thank you for listening. I pass. Thank you, Marjorie. Would anyone else like to share on the second paragraph Marjorie read? Kim. I have Kim, I have Lorna. Okay. And who was the third person? Okay, go ahead, Kim. Good morning, Julie. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. I have to say, I spent my first decade or so in OA being the baffled lot. 
because I didn't know what this malady was. I really thought that food and weight was my problem. It's just a matter of getting that right food plan. It's just a matter of getting down to a certain size and not having to shop in Lane Bryant anymore. That was the answer. And I was baffled. You know, before OA, I was an oblivion. In OA, I was baffled because I got so many mixed messages. And I'm just sitting here, as, as, as Marjorie was talking, I'm thinking of all these sayings that, that baffled me. You know, I, I kept hearing, meeting makers make it. Meeting makers make it, so I make a lot of meetings. What my experience is that meeting makers eat because all I'm doing is hanging around the fellowship. I was told that service was slimming. Therefore, if I did enough service, I was going to be sin and sin was the answer. That didn't work. I was told to think the drink through. So I would spend all this time analyzing my childhood and the latest binge and all this stuff. And all that did was make me a smart, compulsive overeater because the fact of the matter is that mental twist is going to happen. I was told I needed to share to recover. So I would go into meetings and I would vomit on the meetings all the misery of my life. That didn't work either. I had to take action. That's what I had to do. And I was just sitting in rooms complaining about the misery of being a compulsive overeater. For years, I would say in white-knuckled abstinence, abstinence is the most important thing today in my life without exception. That's not the, that's not the solution. Abstinence is absolutely necessary to give me the clarity of thought to do the real work, which is the program of recovery, which is, is the 12 steps. So when I was worshiping abstinence, what I was doing was studying for a test and just hoping to get 30%. Because the larger aspect of my disease is this mental twist that I was not addressing. And what I recognized when I became a student of this big book, which for years I said the program isn't working. I'm working the program. And what I was doing, I had been in the fellowship. I was working the fellowship. The program of recovery is the 12 steps and the instructions in the first 164 pages. That I had never done. And when I did that, after 17 years of being baffled of having abstinence and picking up, and abstinence and picking up, and I did have some relief. I had pockets of temporary respite. But when I became a student of the big book three years ago, what I found was a solution to my real answer, which was the allergy of the body, which was handled through abstinence, and the obsession of the mind, which was handled through the 12 steps. And that last sentence, there's the obsession that somehow, someday, he will beat the game. And I was talking to someone on the phone, and she helped me develop a very good analogy. She talked about the fact that this, this disease is like Russian roulette. And Russian roulette, you take a gun, and you have a barrel, I'm not sure, it's six or eight you know, things for bullets, and you have one bullet in there, and you spin the, the wheel, and you shoot someone. And if, you know, if the one bullet is there, they will die, that the seven out of there, you survive. Well, what I realized is what I would do is I'd play Russian roulette. But what I would do if there, was, if there was six chambers, I would have five chambers filled and only one was empty. And I would sit there and I'd play that game over and over with this diet and that exercise program. And maybe if I go to this meeting and maybe if I get that sponsor, maybe if I do this, I'm hoping for that one time that the barrel's not full. The one time that the barrel's not full. And the fact was that somehow, someday I beat the game, 
If you're a compulsive overeater, my experience is the only game in town is these 12 steps and a spiritual solution. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. And Lorna, would you please read? Thank, thank you. Lauren S., a recovered compulsive overeater from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, what was just beautifully shared is that this, 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 what we're in right now, Overeaters Anonymous, there's a prescription to get recovered. And it's found on page 17, which was, which was just beautifully touched on, which is, which is the feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us. So part one of our prescription is the fellowship. However, the next sentence reads, but that in itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. So part two of the prescription is the book. And after that says, the tremendous fact is we have discovered a common solution, which is the basic, which is our basic text. And right now what we have, <clears throat> what we have went up to in these, how many pages we've read so far, maybe um, about 30, maybe, you know, is we've talked about the fellowship. You know, it's, it's a, it, we've shared in this common peril. And now we've talked, we've touched on the allergy and, Bill's story and the doctor's opinion and and in this there's a solution so far and right now on page 23 through to page 43 we're going to talk about the mental obsession which is what was just shared is is about 70 percent of our problem it's the greater part of our problem it's greater than 50 percent <clears throat> and what would be helpful if you are reading this to get a new experience with the book is to ask yourself, did this malady of the mind have a hold on me and was I baffled? Was I a baffled lot? Have I suffered from the obsession that somehow someday I will control my eating? I will control the beast. And do I, do I suspect that, you know, there's more to this than just out, than just abstinence? Can I believe that, yeah, there's something going on in my head that's obsessed. And an obsession, which is a, which uh, I would, I would, I would recommend looking up the word obsession in the dictionary, but it's an idea that outweighs all other ideas. So obsession for me is what I turn my will and my life to. Am I turning it to my higher power, my obsession? Am I turning my my mind to my higher power or I am I turning my obsession to something else <clears throat> and finally a man that I listen to so so much he's just so helpful um, he said you want to know what you're turning your life to is at the end of the day make a pie graph and and whatever takes up the biggest spot of this pie graph is what you've turned your will in your life to and I can say I try my best to turn it to my higher power. But I'm telling you, there's some days I look at my graph at the end of the day, my mental graph, and and 60% of that graph is, oh, my gosh, this guy is not calling me back. What's going on here? Another day, maybe 75% of this graph is, how much, you know, obsessing about getting into grad school. However, 
if I'm turning my entire pie graph to God, all of those problems with weight and guys and grad school, they're not going to be on that chart because I can just accept that everything is exactly as it needs to be. And my obsession with, with all of this crap won't be there because I know I will be taken care of. And uh, right now, we're on there is a solution. We're not yet starting the action steps. We're just... We're only on step one, so I would say keep identifying yourself, and uh, there's there's uh, there's a lot more to come, as you know. Uh, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Would anybody else like to share on the second paragraph we read? Judy? Do? Okay. Leah? Judy, do, and Leah. Go ahead, Judy. Thank you, Julie, for your service. Hi, good morning everyone. This is Judy F., compulsive overeater recovered from Massachusetts. Oh boy, a lot in here. Um, he, let's see, and the truth, strange is that, strange to say is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. And I spent years in uh, therapy, doing different diets to try to figure out why. Was it because I was an adult child of an alcoholic? Was it because I couldn't um, assert myself so I went to the food for comfort, that I couldn't make decisions, that food, I, I was, if I could just figure out why, then I would stop and I could eat normally and be in a thin body. And really years of therapy to figure out why. And there was, I did have... There is a, the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. I remember first coming into program, and I just did not want to be a compulsive overeater. So I would choose things that someone would say, and I would say, well, that's not me, and then I would leave. And I would <clears throat> go to therapist that was against OA <laughs> so that we could, I could figure out really what was going on with me, and if I could just figure it out, and that was my obsession to have the food down and be thin but eat whatever I wanted, um, when I wanted, but then not have it bite me. And uh, it really took a hold. The once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. And I mean, I did eating disorder groups. I went to different doctors, medication, um, you know, just I was totally obsessed. And obsession is, um, I looked it up, a thought that overpowers all other thoughts. So I might have thought, well, yes, I did eat out of control that day, but this, I could, my thought of, but I can figure this out, I can be a normal eater. And then if I had one day of not binging, I would say, see, you can be a normal eater. So it just totally took over my life until finally I, I was so baffled and so beaten down like a pulp that I had to say, okay, I'll, I'll try so a thing. And that was 23 and a half years ago, and I'm so grateful that since then I've been abstinent and I've worked these steps and I'm recovered and I bring this to other people. But I had to get in that place where I was baffled and what I was doing, you know, no human power, not me, no other human power could do it. And, um, and it was these steps. And um, you know others that had gone before me that were recovered, and with that, I passed. Thank you. 
Thank you, Judy. And do go ahead. Good morning. It's do. Um, I'm a recovered compulsive reader. I just absolutely love these paragraphs because <clears throat> it's really honing in on what our twofold disease is. We we have one disease twofold in nature. And it's the physical as well as the mental. And it, it really um, breaks it down for us um, in these two paragraphs. It says that these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby sending the terrible cycle in motion. So that's the first part, you know, that, that once we pick up a certain uh, substance that triggers the allergy, we break out wanting more and more of the same. But if we never pick up, it's not going to trigger the allergy in our bodies. And so now it's focusing on the bigger aspect, the main problem, which is the mind. And, you know, all action is born in thought. So the body follows the mind, not the other way around, you know. So our main problem is in the mind. So what happens to the mind? What happens to the mind? What makes our mind the main problem? Well, because every action that I'm going to take, every behavior that I'm going to do, every conduct that I'm going to, that I'm going to behave with, it's going to come from my mind. And so the problem is that I have an obsession. And I wanted to read what that means. Um, an obsession is an excessive, irrational mental attachment, a persistent and disturbing preoccupation with and often unreasonable idea or feeling. Compelling motivation, fixation, compulsion. And then compulsion is the compelling or driving force, an irresistible impulsive act regardless of sensibility or sanity of the motivation or the act itself. And so for me, you know, the obsession means that, you know, I'm going to break out in something. (laughs) And what I break out with the obsession is that I break out with a hundred forms of alibis and excuses to go back to my binge foods. I break out with thinking that someday, somehow, I will beat the game. I'm going to eat like a normal person. And, and in the doctor's opinion, it already told me that I must believe that my body and my mind are abnormal. I am not going to be like everyone else. That is part of step one. Breaking the delusion, the idea, the thoughts that come from the mind that I am normal, that my body is, is, is going to be like everyone else. I am different. I have to concede that. I have to concede that my body and my mind, my thoughts, the way I go after these foods is abnormal because I, I, I have a son who comes home and he eats his food and he's not obsessing for the next time to go back to that refrigerator. He's not obsessing over the, uh, the thoughts of, of getting certain foods into his body. Unlike me, I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm thinking about it all the time, all the time. And so... What happens, you know, part of, part of the solution, part of uh, addressing the disease is going through the steps and getting rid of the obsession of the mind. And it's going to show us how to do that 
in these steps. We go step by step in getting rid of that obsession that I am normal like everyone else. I am abnormal. I am abnormal. And that is part of step one is to concede to my innermost part that my mind and my body are affected, especially 70%, like they said, it's affected. It's the mind. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Gu. And Leah? Thanks so much, Julie, for your service. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. Once in a while, he may tell the truth, and the truth, strange to say, is usually that he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Again, uh, you know, uh, making it clear that it's the it's the first drink. It's the first bite, not the tenth one, the first one. You know, I am making these decisions so to speak, while I am abstinent. The food is down. The food is down. It's eliminated. The greater aspect of my disease is this obsession of my mind that keeps uh, sending me back to that which is killing me. It says here uh, there is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game. And as previously mentioned, you know, this is obsession. This is the first time that the book is mentioning now this mental obsession, this disturbing preoccupation with an idea, this uh, thought that keeps giving me permission to pick up that first bite. It's like my pain has no memory. You know, why don't we learn from our consequences of our behavior? We, we have stopped thousands of times, thousands of times. Why don't we stay stopped? Why do we keep you know, testing personal control and picking up that first bite, uh, that has to do with the greater aspect of the disease. I mean, I don't know about your disease. I can certainly tell you about mine. When I abstain, you see, when I eliminate those binge foods uh, and I'm I'm abstinent for a while, (laughs) I start to feel uncomfortable. I feel deprived. I feel impatient. I'm on edge. I'm jealous. I'm restless. I'm irritable and discontent and those feelings and those thoughts crowd my mind like monkey chatter and it gets so loud that I have to shut it up and the only way someone like me a real compulsive overeater knows how to shut that up and how to get relief is to take that first bite and the big book tells me teaches me that that's the obsession of the mind. And that is my main problem. My main problem centers in my mind because it gives me, it persuades me, it convinces me to pick up that which I know is killing me. I know it's going to lead to suffering. I know that it's going to lead to tears. I know the consequences. I know once I pick up, I'm going to binge my brains out until my eyeballs hurt. I know all that, but it is this obsession of the mind, which is mental. It is mental, not emotional. Suddenly, a click occurs, click, and the, it just overpowers all the thoughts to the contrary that this is a bad idea, and we begin again. You know, uh, this is, you know, what... When the big book talks about insanity, this is what it's talking about, the, the inability to see the truth, lack of soundness of mind. You know, binge food has burned me over and over and over. 
but you know, I've I've touched my hand in a in a hot flame before, and I remember that that hot flame leads to pain, and burns my flesh. And I don't go and test my personal control in that area, and I don't have an obsession to keep sticking my hand in the flame. But somehow I can't remember what my binge foods do to me because we get to thinking about what it does for us. And we get to thinking about that sense of ease and comfort that comes by taking a couple of bites and the next thing you know, the obsession of the mind has convinced us that it's okay to take that first bite. And that is the real problem of the compulsive overeater. But <laughs> what if we can find a way to live where our mind doesn't lock on on the sense of ease of comfort that comes at once by eating that first bite? And that process is called recovery. And that's why we get together every morning to talk about the recovery process. It's about implementing the steps to expel, drive out that obsession of the mind. Thanks. I pass. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to read on this paragraph before we move on? This is Janice. Stephanie. Janice. Janice. And then Stephanie. Thank you. Janice. Yes, thank you, Julie and everyone. My name is Janice, and I am a compulsive overeater recovered. You know... This this malady, they're telling us, this book is teaching me, it's a malady. What is a malady? It's an illness. Can I control an illness? Am I in control or am I 100% powerless? You see, the problem with me was that I thought I could. See, I didn't want to be a compulsive overeater. I tried, and I tried, and I figured out someday, somehow, I'll beat the game. You see, a normal eater, I wanted to be a normal eater. I wanted to just, you know, have the allergy pot. That's what a normal eater is. They can have, you know, they can eat too much. They can stop. Not I, because I had the two. A normal eater usually doesn't have the obsession. I had, the, I had to have the double-edged sword. And, and the obsession was worse, but in each part, the allergy and the obsession, I was 100% powerless. That's my problem. Because I couldn't, I, in the beginning, I, I, well, I still can't, I couldn't control the amount I could, took, and yet when I was stopped, I couldn't control. I could not control. I was 100% powerless not to pick it up again because of the obsession, because the obsession in my mind, it didn't come from my body. The obsession, the ideas, ideas come from the mind, not from my body. And the idea that, you know, someday, somehow, and you know, on page 31, it's very clear that despite, like it was just mentioned, despite all we can say, you know, um, many who are real alcoholics are not going to believe. And believe comes from the mind, but I believed a lie. You know, I wanted it to be the truth, but I believed the lie. The little word that's in believe is a lie. They are in that class, and by every form of self-deception, every form that I try to fool myself and believe, an experiment to prove that I wasn't a compulsive overeater, that I was an exception that maybe I was a non-alcoholic, you know, non-compulsive overeater. 
Heaven knows that we've tried and tried and tried, but we are 100% powerless. That's why I couldn't do it on my own. I needed a solution, and there was no solution, no human solution that I found, except in the 12 steps, which, of course, I find the power. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks, Julie. Thanks. Thank you, Janice. And, Stephanie, you're going to be our last reader on this paragraph, so go ahead. Good morning. Okay, can you guys hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Good morning, Stephanie, Recovered Compulsive Reader for today. Hi. Um, First of all, I'm just grateful to not be an exception this morning and be able to identify, and it feels really good. I'm shaking, so I'm so excited to be able to share. Um, I'm sometimes wondering if I'm the only one that's journaling crazy and shaking my head and bobbling because I'm just relating to so much and my heart's beating out of my chest because... I love this program more than anything in this world, and I just relate, and it just feels really, really good to not be an exception, because uh, I definitely need help with this disease of the mind, the body, and everything inside of me. So as good as it feels to identify, it's also terrifying, so I'm grateful that at the top of every other page, it says there's a solution, because this chapter keeps telling me, um, keeps diagnosing me, and the word that keeps coming up for me that someone shared the other morning is just like possessed, feeling possessed. And I just relate to that because in my disease, um, which is progressive because I, you know, I've been in this program for over seven years, seven years just about. And in the beginning there were certain foods that I couldn't have. And then when I abstained from them, I was able to um, experience recovery and freedom from the obsession. But then I, relapsed and I and, and I can see the progression of this disease and feel it because at this point I just became like it was shared yesterday by someone I became just I'm, I'm addicted to just the act of compulsively overeating at this point I can binge on anything and wow is it progressive and I feel possessed in the sense that it's like an I can almost see myself do it and not stop and um that was one of the scariest things is knowing that like I'm in the game and I'm <laughs> It talks about the obsession, and that and that's what, what I'm getting at. I'm once I'm in it, and I'm looking at myself and not being able to stop, like the insanity of that, and knowing there's that it's that I that I'm not going to be able to stop once I start. Like knowing program, having that seed planted, but still doing it, that scares me. That really scares me because I don't even. It's like I don't even want to, but it's I can't not do it. Uh, um. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not even just eliminating my binge food, just those behaviors that I do that are really shady, that I've got to um, get real and honest with myself on this chapter. You know, there's really no way around that the excuses at this point are don't really work, are, are no match against this chapter because it keeps telling me all the things that I am and the possess- like how possessed I become in this obsession and, and what I know at this point. I just can't deny that I have this disease, and that's why I'm grateful for this for this chapter and for all the shares, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm really, really grateful. As scary as it is to know that I have this, there's always a comfort of knowing there's a solution if I work this program, and God, I'm a fighter. So it's not that I want to deny that I have a disease. It's just that I, I can't do life. <laughs> I don't know how to do life, and I know how to do food. I know how to do food, and I know how to eat, and I freaking love that. So... You, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm and I'm grateful I can grab this phone meeting because trust me, the first thought is not only get down on my knees, though I know it's the right thing to do, is wait breakfast. Like I want to eat breakfast. 
But no, I, I, I mean, I get down on my knees and I ask God for help and I, you know, just show me how I can help other people because I know if I'm in the food, I can't help anybody. So I'm here. I'm never going anywhere, and I'm grateful for you guys. I'm grateful for this meeting. People have already called me, and I'm pretty new to it, and I just, I'll call you back if I have it yet. Um, and just thank you for letting me share. I'm really grateful, and yay, that's it with that. I'll pass. Thank you, Stephanie. And Larry, would you please read the next two paragraphs? <laughs> Good morning. This is Larry, recovered um, compulsive reader from Chicago. Wow, I just love the passion of this program. Um, how true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. The tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. At a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is of absolutely no avail. This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspect, uh, suspected. Um, yeah, there's a lot here. Um, you know, <clears throat> we're talking about how true this is, how true what is, that we were, that we were baffled. You know, that we tried to beat this game. I was baffled. I was puzzled. I was perplexed, mystified, bewildered, whatever word. You know, why, God? Why am I picking this food up again? Here I go again. Please, God, please, please help me to stop. Another diet, a pill, a new relationship, a vacation, a new car. Have you done that one? I've gone out and bought a new car. <clears throat> Didn't wake up in the morning thinking I was going to buy a new car. I don't, I don't have the money for a new car. Never did. You know, but I went out and bought a $30,000, $40,000 new car many times. Sad to admit. Surely this will alter my thinking. See, the main problem centers in my, in my mind, and we hear that, but what is my mind? Is it, what is my mind? Is it my brain, my, <clears throat> my intellect, my psyche? My mind was equipped to think and reason. God gave me that, that um, ability. My mind is the catalyst, you know, the mechanism for my behavior. In other words, you know, my, my thinking translates it to behavior every time. So somehow it has to do with my beliefs. If my thinking is screwed up, defective, broken, does it not make sense that, that the behavior that follows this broken thinking will also be faulty? And yes, sometimes I would tell the truth. Uh, even a broken clock is right twice a day. I, I would tell the truth. I'd fall into that a couple times a day, maybe. Let me tell you something. I wasn't mean to other people. I wasn't breaking windshields and mean to my two ex-wives because I was an evil, bad person. Self-justification and delusion were my best friends. You see, I, I treated people poorly in action, action, because that was my very best prevailing thinking at the time. God has seen to it that I think a bit differently today. And let me be clear, I don't think better today because I found the right book, the right philosophy of living, the right moral compass. Nah, don't be fooled. The God of my understanding changed me. Trust me, I didn't earn it. So when we, when we talk about this, this problem centers in the mind, you know, before God removed this uh, from me as a direct result of the spiritual transformation by working these steps, you know, my best thinking was, you know, you hurt me 
Food will make it better. I'm bored. Yeah, food will excite me. I'm sad. Food will restore me to a state of bliss. You know, I'm angry. Food will calm me down. I'm overwhelmed. Food will provide me with peace and tranquility. Oh, I'm, I, here's one. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's it. Done. Food will restore me to sanity. That was the obsession of mine for me. Past tense. My higher power removed that from me. Thank you, God. So, you know, if I have a willingness, willingness, courage and desire to work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, the resiliency to see this program of action through, without prior evidence that it would work for me, I'm going to have to fully surrender. So why must we fully concede to our innermost selves, you know, why, why we were real alcoholics? Because this is the first step in recovery. You know, the delusion has to be shattered. It has to be destroyed, disintegrated, blown up. And, and I'll, I'll say that, you know, is this program of action complex? Let me break it down for you the way it was broken down for me. I mean, this is, yeah, it's kind of complex. It's pretty involved. Here we go. Ready? Trust God, clean house, help others. You know, if you can find another way to beat this game, God bless you. In fact, when you find this way, perhaps, in fact, I'll tell you, perhaps you'll be inspired to write a book that will reach every person who needs it from one end of the globe to the other. If you're on this line and you've discovered a new way, please get my number and call me. I'll, I'll celebrate with you. I'll celebrate your success. Thank God for Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I'm a grateful customer, and I have a, a sneaking suspicion that I'll be back here tomorrow. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. Would anyone like to share on these paragraphs? Press star one to unmute. Katie. Uh, Rochelle. Katie, and then Rochelle. Go ahead. Good morning. This is Katie, a recovered compulsive overeater in Virginia. Uh, the tragic truth is that the man, the man be, if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. And I chased that uh, idea for years of finding. You know, as Kim has talked about, the perfect food plan. I thought that if I had the perfect food plan, if I had my life, you know, doing the job that I really loved, if I, you know, could ignore the people that um, irritated me, you know, if I learned how to have self-control, you know, just arrange life exactly the way I wanted it to be, then I would not have this obsession anymore. And the scary part was I got everything in order. No one was being rude to me, and I still ate. So that's what leads us to the second paragraph, which is this tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. So I didn't realize that all this self-knowledge that I had, all this information that I had gleaned from my you know, big 27 years of existence on this earth, gave me no hope and no help and no power. I needed to find a power outside of myself and had to surrender to the fact that I, I didn't know anything. My best thinking got me to over 190 pounds on a 5'3 frame at 27 years of age. You know, that was my best thinking, working 70 hours a week, you know, having no life, um, and that was my best effort. 
So, you know, anything was better than that. But I always used uh, the uh, idea that my knowledge of this program um, was going to work one day. That, you know, one day I was going to wake up and I was just going to be abstinent without any effort on my part, without doing anything. I just thought it was going to somehow magically happen. And, you know, this is a spiritual program. It is not magic. Uh, it does require action on my part. And my action many days, including today, is to get on my knees and say, God, my best thinking is not taking me to the right place. Please help me to get out of my sick head. Because that is where the problem starts, is in my head. And, you know, I'm happy to report that I don't have to do that today. I don't have to go back to the food and then be scratching my head and wondering, how did that happen? I have, you know, this spiritual toolkit of surrendering and doing the next right thing. And there is, uh, you know, I have a plan that works for me today. And it doesn't include bakery boxes and, you know, wandering through the mall, um, going from one establishment to the next, which is what I did. Um, I don't have to do that today. I live from, uh, from day to day without having to pick up that first bite. And that is a miracle because it's the first bite that takes me. It's not the hundredth bite. It's that first bite. It's thinking for a split second that I don't have this disease anymore. And, you know, uh, there's enough people out there doing research and development to remind me that this does not go away. It does not get better. It is not easier. It's a progressive disease. And if I go back out there and, uh, you know, think that I can just take back my will and do it my way just this once, just this once, I don't want to be embarrassed and, you know, eat my food in front of, you know, uh, my new coworkers. So I'm just going to eat what they're eating so I won't look weird. You know, if those crazy thoughts take over, um, guess what? I'm going to be um, back into the tra tragic situation this is talking about. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Katie. And Rochelle? Hi, good morning. Uh, vision for you. This is Rochelle, recovered uh, compulsive overeater in Baltimore, Maryland. I want to respond to the sentence that says, uh, but everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. It brought to mind a memory that I have that I wanted to share. And, uh, I mean, thank God I'm in six-plus years of recovery, back-to-back -back abstinence from the day I started this program, which I consider a real blessing. And um, I remember when I was growing up, and I'm now a grandmother, sitting at a table by myself and watching my hand extend to the food and saying, wait a second, my mind doesn't want to pick this up. Why is my hand doing this? And then taking the food and saying to myself, I really don't want to do this and doing it anyway as if I had no control because I felt I had no control and my mind just went along with the hand. And uh, it was gray. If I were to paint the color of my life then, I would have painted it gray. I was uh, I was in a meeting last night, and I had been asked to qualify. 
and I described my life, and, and I thought about Kim and the, and the approach of refer people to the, uh, the big book. And this was a, a meeting for relapsers. And um, I described what I do and the freedom that I have. And someone said to me, I can't do what you do. What you do is rigid. I said to her, do you look both ways when you cross the street? She said, yeah. I said, well, you're rigid. Said, Why do you do that? I mean, I didn't say this part to her, but the point was, if I didn't look both ways, I could get dead. You know, if I don't do what I do, I could get dead. I do this, and it gives me freedom, and that's the paradox. It what might seem to other people, like I do a lot of different things, service, and, and weigh, weigh, weigh and measure my food, and I'm careful about what I eat and how I conduct myself and try to remember to turn my, my will and my power to God. That might sound rigid to somebody else, but hey, you know, that's freedom. That is real freedom. That's the fourth dimension freedom that we talk about and we try for. And that's only accessible to me because I use these forms that are described in the big book. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Hi, this is Julie. I'm going to step in for one second. The You know, the first paragraph talks about um, everybody waits the day for the sufferer, you know, to exert his willpower. Power. You know, my husband um, married me thin, but I had been fat, thin, fat. And he thought I was a quote-unquote normal. And over the years, he saw me do things with food that most people don't do, even though he could only see a quarter of what I did because I hid the rest. But, you know, being 277 plus on a five foot two frame is a little bit overweight. And as the years went by, he'd seen me in and out of program. He knew that the next diet wasn't going to do anything for me. And the thousands of dollars that we spent, gym memberships, pay and weigh, whatever. He, um, I think I shared this before, but when I was stark raving abstinent and thin and was um, not, you know, living in 10, 11, and 12, I, I started to, um, I took that first bite and I gained 100 of my 150 back and I left, and one of the stipulations as we were going through um, marriage counseling, he said he I needed to return to OA. And wow, what a gift that was for a non-addict to say that. He saw the value in this program and others around me that had recovered. And um, so that's just a real plus because a lot of people don't see what our disease does. And, uh, you know, the tragic truth was I was never going to come back both body and mentally unless I had come back to this program, studied the big book, got a big book sponsor, accepted my powerlessness, and did the work. So um, it's an awesome program. So with that, I'll pass. Would anybody else like to um, share on this paragraph? This is Joe. I do. Go ahead. Good morning. Um, this is Stu, Recover Compulsive Overeater. Um, I'm going to hone in on the fact that it says the sufferer will rouse himself from the lethargy and assert his willpower. And, you know, this program um, teaches me that it's not about my own power. I think we lost you, do. I can't hear you. Okay, can you hear me now? 
Yes, thank you. Okay, sorry about that. Um, so as I was mentioning, you know, this program has taught me that it's not about my own willpower. It's not about my own power because I, I will always get what I always got if I always do what I've always done. And, you know, and it says the tragic truth is that if you be alcoholic, a real compulsive overeater, the happy day may not arrive because he has lost control, you know, is power, choice. It is, these words are interchangeably. And it says at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into the state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is absolutely no avail. And I always think about getting in the car and, you know, and using my brakes consistently, you know, where I had power at one point in time to, to make sure that I, I come to a stop. But after a while of practicing (laughs) my eating career, I have worn that power down to the point where it becomes practically non-existent. The brakes have totally worn out, and now I am powerless. And unless I go to a mechanic that knows about brakes and changes that, you know, I'm going to be going into a fatal crash or I'm going to die from it because I'm going to keep practicing that putting on the brakes when there's no brakes anymore. And um, and I see that. You know, it says the tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it is suspected. And, you know, because we're affected with the mind, you know, that is the main problem. My thinking is faulty. I'm thinking that I can drive that way. I can I can continue to drive that way. Even though I suspect some, some kind of way that maybe I need to change my brakes, I don't do it, and I continue to practice that behavior. Why? Because my thinking says I can go the extra mile. I can go the next 10 extra miles knowing and hearing the squeakiness of my, of my brakes, knowing that there is something wrong with my brakes. You know, if I'm hearing that cranking noise in, in my wheels, that's an indication it's time to change. But because I'm a compulsive overeater, I ignore that. I think I'm going to beat the game. I'm going to go the next 10, 15 miles with my brakes being off, you know. And that's that's how I I equate this, that I lose the power, the control. But I also have a faulty thinking that tells me that I still have the control and that I still can can get away with it. And so with that, I pass. Thank you, Deb. It is now time to close our meeting. I would like to thank everyone who shared. Do would you please read page 164 in the big book, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Sure. Um, Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answer will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find. Uh, I'm sorry. Give freely of what you find and join us. 
We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you unto then. Pass.